Tonight on Battleground, a question of faith. Are Australians abandoning religion altogether, or has there been a mass conversion to a new gospel, the gospel of woke? I'll be testing that theory with Dr Stephen Jabora later. I'm Nick Cater, and this is Battleground, the safe space for intelligent conversation that streams every Friday on ADH-TV. You can watch on demand via the good old-fashioned World Wide Web, if that's your thing, or better still, download the ADH app from your smartphone or smart TV. Later, the war on meat. I'll be joined by my colleague Amanda Stoker to discuss the myth that carnivores are destroying the planet. And we have exclusive polling of the attitudes of Australians to nuclear power. You may find the results surprising. First, however, to the war on plastic and the exaggerated panic about plastic items entering the waste stream that's distracting us from far greater challenges. From November here in New South Wales, the maximum penalty for supplying customers with a plastic spoon or a plastic fork will be a fine of $11,000. That's twice as big as the maximum fine for supplying somebody with cannabis, incidentally. Similar penalties will apply to anyone trafficking in polystyrene food containers, plastic plates, plastic straws and even plastic-handled cotton buds. On the other hand, you won't be fined for buying one of these objects and sticking it on your roof. On the contrary, you'll be offered a taxpayer-funded incentive of up to $7,000 to do so. And if you want to cover hectare after hectare of farmland with industrial-scale solar energy power like these, the planning department will go out of its way. The irony is that while we agonise over supermarket bags and other flimsy plastic items, there is no conversation about how to dispose of millions of tonnes of photovoltaic cells when they each reach the end of their useful life. In New South Wales, there are 18 mega solar plants already in operation, like this one at Colliamboli near Narandra, owned by the French company Neon. There are 83 more in the pipeline as we race towards the heroic 43% emissions reduction target, which the federal government has now locked into law. As we know, this won't solve the energy crisis we face with the removal of baseload power. Most solar farms produce electricity we can use less than a quarter of the time and make the grid more unstable. We know too that tens of millions of solar panels New South Wales is going to need from China, the Saudi Arabia of photovoltaic cells, and they'll come from one of the most insecure destinations in the world. And we know that they have a life of around 20 years at best before they start to crack up. What then? Well, last year, New South Wales Legislative Councillor Rod Roberts asked Energy Minister Matt Keane how many used solar panels have been recycled in the past two years. The written response read, the Department of Planning, Industry and the Environment does not have data on the number of waste solar panels recycled in New South Wales. Roberts went on to ask, what is happening to decommissioned solar panels that are not being recycled? The response came back, decommissioned solar panels that are not being recycled are currently going into landfill. Mr Roberts asked, how many solar panels are expected to be decommissioned in the next 12 months? The minister replied, the University of Technology has estimated that there would be 2,700 tonnes of decommissioned solar panels in New South Wales in 2021 alone. And the way things stand, they're all going to finish up in landfill because the cost of recycling them doesn't make sense. Nor does it make environmental sense for that matter, given the energy needed to recycle them. The cost of recycling a panel in Australia is currently $30, according 
to the website solarquotes.com.au. Now, out of that, the recycler may recover 40 cents worth of glass, 9 cents worth of plastic, 21 cents of silicon, $6.40 in silver, 85 cents in copper, 20 cents worth of aluminium, making a grand total of $8.15 a panel. In other words, the only way it makes sense is to recycle these things is with a government subsidy, and let's not give them ideas. The cost and energy used to recycle them simply isn't worth the effort. As Solar Quotes concludes, it's actually greener to put them in landfill. And with the rate that we're installing them right now, there's going to be a lot of landfill. Professor Rodney Stewart from Griffiths University has estimated that by 2050, Australia will have 1.5 million tonnes of solar photovoltaic waste to dispose of, which makes all the fuss we're making about plastic spoons and forks look foolish. Like much of the conversation about the environment these days, lots of big talk, but precious useful action. If we want to get to reduce the planet's greenhouse gas emissions to zero, we're going to have to do much better than this. We can't keep ignoring the many drawbacks with industrial wind and solar and keep pretending that renewables that depend on the weather are no regrets alternatives to coal. Now to an exclusive battleground poll on nuclear power. Our poll conducted this week amongst a representative sample of a thousand Australians suggests support is growing for small modular reactors, an efficient, clean and safe innovation that's attracting interest all around the world. We asked, do you think Australia should explore nuclear power as an option for meeting our energy security and emissions targets? The result is encouraging. 55% are in favour of considering the nuclear option and 45% are opposed. In other words, there's a clear majority, but not yet, I'd suggest, a decisive one. Next, we asked, how do you think Australia should supplement intermittent renewable energy generation? The answer? 41% of Australians said we shouldn't look at any backup source and should press on with renewables alone. Good luck with that one. The same number, 41%, said we should use small nuclear modular reactors. And a remaining 18% say we should stick with coal, gas or a combination of the two. But the results of the first question suggest those people could be won over to nuclear power. Understanding how most Australians think on crucial issues like energy is vital. The opinions you see so often in the mainstream press are frequently just projections of elite opinion, which is a very different thing from common sense, which is why we'll be testing the waters regularly on Battleground here on ADH TV. Should we explore the small modular reaction, small modular reactor option? Tell me what you think at nickcater at adh.tv. Let's bring in Amanda Stoker now, former Assistant Federal Attorney General and a Distinguished Fellow of the Mendes Research Centre. She joins me now from Brisbane. Amanda, it's uh, early days yet in the nuclear debate, but these results from Compass polling suggest that the public support for wind and solar is beginning to fade. What did you make of those numbers? 55% are prepared to consider the small modular reaction option compared to 45% against. These numbers are really encouraging for two reasons. First, it's um, an indication that Australians are starting to see some of the complexities surrounding renewables. They aren't just a cost-free dogma, um, which is sort of how they were understood for a period of time. They were seen as having no downside. And if Australians are understanding the complexity of that and the knock-on consequences for the cost of energy, for instance, um, that shows a development in Australia's understanding that's important. 
but also seeing this high level of potential support for nuclear energy, even at a time when those in the political class haven't really taken Australians on the journey of reassuring them about its safety, about its potential um, cleanliness and about its ability to deliver in a cost-effective way over time, suggests it is well and truly achievable to get really quite strong support out in the community. Mm. I think there's no secret of the fact that uh, the coalition uh, was very nervous about raising nuclear power. I mean, once you've talked about nuclear submarines, as we did, nuclear power is the next conversation to have. But there was, um, I think you would have noticed it too, a deliberate uh, effort not to go there before the election. I would have thought on these numbers, I'd be still cautious about going there, you know, as a firm policy proposal. But you can certainly see how you can build a consensus over time if you argue it's in the right way. I think that's right. And if it's done in a way that is sensitive to the concerns of Australians about making sure that um, the kinds of disasters that have been seen in the past or the, the kinds of images that people associate with the Simpsons rather than the reality of the technology we're dealing with today, if we can allay those concerns and help people to understand the healthy place this could take in the energy mix as a way of helping to support the unreliability of renewables, it could actually take this country a long way forward. Uh, the, elsewhere in that Compass polling, we found out that 41% of Australians, four in 10 Australians, actually think you can manage without any backup power, 100% on renewables. Now, nobody who's spent any time looking seriously at the engineering, let alone economic issues here, would, would think that was remotely possible. But it does suggest to me that, that much of the debate here is being driven by good intentions and feelings rather than pragmatism, sound logic and you know, genuine scientific arguments. What do you think? Look, I think that's right. And that misconception from um, people responding to the poll really does reflect the fact that renewables have been seen as a cost-free, virtuous choice um, in the way that it's been marketed by those from the green left. Um, once people start to understand that there are real costs in the monetary and um, in the environmental sense associated with renewables, and then they start to think about some of those um, sovereign capability questions that come with the fact that most renewable um, equipment and servicing and parts all come straight out of China, um, all of those complexities layered on help people to understand that we actually need diversity in the energy mix so that we can have the ability to um, support and adapt the technologies to one another. Now, so much of the climate energy policy these days seems to be driven, uh, I think, not so much by facts, but factfulness. You know, the feeling that something sounds so good, we feel it must be true. <laughs> uh, here's a little factfulness uh, treat, tweeted out by Teal Independent MP Zali Stegel recently. She tweeted, did you know switching one pack of mints per week for a plants-based alternative saves around 48 kilograms of CO2 emissions? That's around 196 kilometres in your average car. I'm afraid, Amanda, that's just flat out wrong, it seems to me. I mean, certainly when it comes to the Australian meat industry, I mean, grazing cattle and sheep is a highly efficient way, environmentally friendly, of converting plants into protein, nutrients we need like vitamin B12, needed for the production of red blood cells and 
proper functioning of the nervous system. The red meat industry's contribution to national emissions has actually fallen substantially by 57% since 2005. So it seems to me that, that we should be praising our farmers for the efforts we're making in this, not slandering the entire industry in crowd-pleasing tweets. You're right to say that um, her statement is factually incorrect. Um, the other baggage it carries that I think is really harmful is this suggestion that those who farm protein are somehow doing harm to the environment, whereas those people who grow plant-based crops um, are inherently better. Now, we know that there are um, lots of farmers across all of those categories that are extremely environmentally conscious. Um, I'm always amazed when greeny types try and pretend like farmers are environmental vandals. Nobody's got more skin in the game of looking after the land than people whose livelihood depends on it and their children's livelihood depends on it. Um, so when I see the great farming practices that are being demonstrated um, by the, the beef industry, by um, the lamb industry, even by poultry and many of the other proteins, they're doing amazing work. And that is really dismissed by these kind of um, glib misconceptions being peddled in the cities. The other factor too, I think, is that we need to rethink the way that many of these agricultural industries are understood. And I'll give you the example of cotton. Um, you know, cotton is treated as though it is water sucking and inefficient and bad for the water table and all this sort of stuff. That's actually reflective of such outdated farming practice. Modern cotton is really efficient with water. It actually sequesters carbon at an incredible rate and it's producing some of the best product in the world. Um, whether it's in Moree, whether it's in the Atherton Tablelands, um, whether it's in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, great stuff is happening here. And to see our agricultural industries constantly treated as though they are vandals um, when they are really our first environmentalists um, is bad for industry. It's bad for the choices that our young people make in terms of what careers they go into and the skills our country has, um, but it's also deeply disrespectful to the people who care for and maintain the vast majority of the land in this country. Yeah, and when we see what's been happening to farmers in Holland, in Canada, I guess Sri Lanka too, as a result of this dogma, we shouldn't be complacent about it. But anyway, to the one of the big political stories of the week, the Jobs Summit in Canberra. Last week, Amanda, we took uh, we expressed concerns, I think both of us, that this conflab would be used as a cover to re-regulate the labour market and give more power back to the trade unions. Has anything happened this week to cause you to change your mind? Um, only a lot of confirmation that our fears were well justified. We've had a head of the summit that's on at the moment. Um, confirmation that there is going to be a return to what's being called industry-wide bargaining, but which anybody who has an understanding of history knows is the pattern bargaining of the 1970s. That means that a dispute about pay in one business in an industry can be used to cause strikes right across the businesses in all different parts of that industry. Now, 
That was abandoned during the Hawke-Keating era for good reason. It's deeply inefficient. It's harmful to the jobs of working people. It's harmful to the sustainability of the businesses upon which those jobs depend. And it leads to lower real wages growth. And yet, that is the grand takeaway that people are supposed to be celebrating coming out of this summit. It is such a step back for this country. And the very fact that you know, sensible heads from the Labor side, like Michael Danby, are themselves publicly expressing their disappointment about this, tells us that this is really paying the piper. The unions who funded that last campaign um, and are desperate to secure their relevance, rather than doing what is in the interests of Australians and the interests of working people. And forgive me for being fired up, Nick, but it makes me angry. It is so wrong to the most vulnerable people in this country. And they don't care. They're pushing on anyway. Well, look, I, I get the bit about payback for the unions, right? They've, they've, they've given millions of dollars to get Anthony Albanese elected. They expect something in return. That's the way it works on in Labor politics. But I was surprised that the collective bargaining plans seem to be supported by some employer groups, including, most bizarrely of all, I thought, the Council for Small Business. It's a case of uh, turkey, turkeys voting for Christmas, isn't it, Amanda? <laughs> Couldn't have put that better myself. The it is small business that will really notice the problems most here. Um, they're going to find a reach of industrial action into small workplaces that wasn't there before. It's been done under the cover of award simplification, but the simplification they're going to get is just going to be the rising of all of those awards to the highest common denominator. You want to see small business being non-viable, particularly after two years of COVID upheaval, this is the way to get it. Look, there's a lot happening and a lot more we could talk about on the Job Summit. Just one more point very quickly, though, uh, and that was Tony Burke's attack on the so-called gig economy last week, which uh, I thought was very strange. This is what Burke said about the gig economy. Gig work drives down wages and has been spreading like a cancer through the economy, extending into the care economy, in the aged care, the NDIS, into industries like security, 21st century technology must not mean 19th century working conditions. That's extraordinary rhetoric, don't you think, Amanda? I mean, most people I would find that the gig, whether they work in the gig economy or whether they're customers of the gig economy, they rather like the flexibility that, that it provides. There are lots of people for whom participation in the gig economy is a choice, a choice they freely make and uh, one that they very much want to have available. The agenda that lies underneath this is not actually about working conditions. It's about the difficulty that the unions have in getting their claws and their, their dollars out of gig economy workers. That's why they want to shut it down. Uh, it's the same concern they've had around labour hire for many years, even though labour hire is a really important part of the economy and um, often provides great opportunities for Australians. That's what's driving this. Um, and it is really very troubling that we have got somebody so stuck in the past um, as responsible for industrial relations under this government. Um, it really does suggest, as a country, we are going to go backwards in our competitiveness in a very serious way.
Concerning times indeed, Amanda, we'll unpack some of these big issues, and they are big issues, again next week. Thank you for joining me on Battleground. Thanks for having me. Dr Stephen Javora will be joining me next, but before he does, I want to tell you about a special gala dinner in honour of a great Australian, Neville Bonner. We'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bonner's arrival in Canberra to take his seat in the Senate as the nation's first Indigenous parliamentarian. Fittingly, the gala dinner will be held in the dining room of Old Parliament House, where Bonner served with great dignity and distinction from 1971 to 1983. Make a note of the date, Tuesday the 13th of September, starting at 7pm. Guest speakers at the dinner will include John Howard, Peter Dutton and Jacinta Price, who paid tribute to Bonner in her maiden speech. If you'd like to join me for this historic event, you can email me at nickcater at adh.tv and I'll send you the details or go to the Menzies Research Centre's website and kick on events. That's www.menziesrc.org events. Well, it's official. The 2021 census reveals that Christians are officially a minority in Australia and a persecuted minority at that. What's more, Christians don't qualify for the protection that human rights legislation grants other minorities, for instance, those defined by race, gender or sexual orientation. But the fact that people who claim an affiliation to the Christian church has fallen from 61.1% to 43.9% in just five years suggests the status of formal religion in Australia is rapidly declining. The implications are far bigger than many people think. Modern Australia has been defined by its Judeo-Christian origins and they underpin our shared understanding of who we are and how we should behave. To discuss the change in the culture is Dr Stephen Chavora, a lecturer in European and Australian history at Campion College and the author of The Forgotten Menzies, the world picture of Australia's longest serving Prime Minister, published last year. Stephen, welcome. What are the reasons for this uh, fall in faith allegiance, in your view? Well, it's great to be on the show, Nick. Thank you very much. Uh, the fall in uh, sort of religiosity, or maybe a better way of putting it, the decline of Christianity in Australia, is something that also happened uh, throughout uh, Western Europe and to a lesser extent ha happened in America. Uh, but, you know, at the time, during the 1960s, social commentators would talk about uh, decline in church attendance being caused by technology, uh, for one thing. So, for example, uh, when, when, families, uh, when it became more common for families to own cars, uh, there was uh, more of an incentive to do things other than go to church on a Sunday. You could go up or down the coast, you could go to a park for a picnic and things like that. So just the introduction of the motor car was something that provided a kind of competition with church attendance. The rise of, of television as well is something that, again, uh, commentators at the time in the 1960s said is having an impact on church attendance. But then there's something a bit deeper in the culture, Nick, that's mm. also uh, led over decades to a decline in not just church attendance, but a decline in the public significance and, and belief in Christianity. And, and, and this happens most rapidly, as you said, really from about you know, 1966 to 1971, you see a great drop in, um, in people identifying as Christians and a great actual incline in people identifying with no religion. And that is a kind of 
moral worldview shift that takes place around the developed West, particularly around questions of, of sexual morality uh, and also questions of sort of gender relations. And, and, and what starts to happen, particularly from the 1950s, is you kind of get a separation of, of sort of biblical traditional Christianity and public morality. They start to sort of um, sort of be prized apart more and more and, and that Christianity seems at first kind of morally quaint but then you get to sort of this day and age with um, modern uh, beliefs regarding gender and sexuality and things like that and Christianity now sort of almost well basically seems by many people to be sort of immoral and, and harmful but so yeah a great moral shift that takes place a cultural revolution uh, from the 1960s which is still going today. We'll unpack some of that in a moment, but first let's go to some more examples of how this is playing out. This uh, irreligiosity, if you like, is playing out in our, in our society. The new Senate president, Sue Lyons, wants to end the tradition of saying the Lord's Prayer at the start of Senate proceedings. Now, Stephen, I don't know about you, but this makes me deeply uneasy. Um, why does it make me uneasy? What, what, are, we, what are we missing um, well, it could be the case that it kind of makes me a bit uneasy as well because it doesn't seem in any way to be a kind of organic, um, organic sort of sort of fading away of the Lord's Prayer. It's not something that seems to be demanded at a popular level. It's something that's sort of going to be uh, imposed probably for a fairly ideological reason. And, and no doubt there will be an attempt to replace it with something that you know, at best won't be any more representative uh, for Australians than the Lord's Prayer. At worst, might be actually even less representative. So I, I think it's probably driven to a large extent by a kind of ideological secularism, which again, out of this cultural revolution of the 1960s, just sees Christianity as something that is regressive and not progressive and something that as much as possible should be relegated out of the public and increasingly into a private sphere, a private sphere which we might talk about later seems to be getting narrower and narrower. Well, let's go to another example of that, leading on from what you say that people are trying to portray it as old fashioned. You know, you're a dinosaur if you believe these things. And that's the recent um, furore at uh, Manly Sea Eagles, where they decided to have a rainbow round game and have rainbow, uh, uh, this is a well-known story, uh, uh, rainbow jerseys, and seven members of the team said they couldn't wear these for religious reasons, and it turned out that they were Christians. Uh, it seems to me this whole episode, if, if, the go if the goal was to exclude, marginalise, and indeed humiliate seven Christians who happened to play for Manly, they did a very good job. But if the goal was really to bring everybody together in a display of unity and inclusivity, then it was an absolute failure. Uh, how do you read it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I basically read it as a continuation on of, of this cultural revolution, which begins in the 1960s, whose basic purpose is to erase the vestiges of Christian belief, of Christian morality from society. It's something that was uh, that, that's you know, very much pursued by intellectuals throughout the 20th century uh, who got into universities um, to sort of bring about a kind of uh, left-wing anti-Christian agenda, and they went on to produce. Um, you know, teachers, other academics, people in the media, cultural forming elites. And this is sort of a continuation of that. And, and it's absolutely 
about, in a sense, creating uh, uniformity, not diversity. Um, it, it's part of this great awakening uh, that we're sort of living through right now. I mean, you know, if the Manly Sea Eagles really cared about being inclusive, then you would just ask players not to discriminate against LGBT players. But that's not what they've asked them to do. They've actually asked them to openly celebrate and you know, appraise uh, LGBT rights, which of course is something that just goes against uh, the player's traditional sort of biblical Christianity. And that's irrelevant to this uh, LGBT movement because it's really not about rights. It's really not about inclusivity. It's about replacing a Christian heritage with a new way of living, a new way of thinking, which we often we call today sort of wokeness. But again, it all comes from that 1960s cultural revolution, which is still rolling on to this day. Well, that throws up an interesting question for me. Are we losing religion altogether as a society or is it being, is traditional religion, Christianity, Judeo-Christian tradition, is that being challenged by an alternative faith that's represented by the, by the progressive liberalism that's come to be known as, as woke? Is that essentially what's going on or is it a battle between two faiths? Well, I think it is in some ways a battle between two faiths. I mean, I don't know that human beings on the whole necessarily get more or less religious. You know, I, I think that human beings... Uh, as human beings look for meaning, they look for purpose in life. It's one of the things that distinguishes from the, us from the animals. And you know, for 2,000 years, uh, the main answers uh, um, accepted by people on the big questions of human existence, why do we exist, how should we live, were offered by Christianity. And since the decline of that, we haven't become any, necessarily any less inquisitive into those questions, but other uh, ways of thinking, ideologies, and even religions have taken the place. And one of them is absolutely sort of the social justice ideology. I would even call it a kind of religion of wokeness and so I don't know I don't I wouldn't which is why sort of earlier I said we might be better off talking about the decline the social decline of Christianity than the decline of religion itself because as as Christianity declines people take on other things like new age forms of spiritualism uh, worship of, of sort of bodily health and things like that and the other thing is this sort of neo-marxist uh, social justice movement which in many ways resembles historic Christianity in some pretty strange ways, Nick. Look, it's hard, uh, you know, from a sociological perspective, it's hard to conceive of a society that has any degree of, of unity or wholeness that doesn't have a shared set of principles, philosophical beliefs, uh, and that, that, that frequently may take the form of religion, as in Australia's case, the tradition we inherited from the UK, as in the United States case, that's largely a Christian tradition or Judeo-Christian tradition. In other countries, it might be, uh, you know, other forms of religion. But, but there, there has to be that bond, if you like. We all agree on something. And of course, you'd be familiar with the, the work by Emil Durkheim, The Elementary Forms of Religion, mm -hmm. classic book of sociology, which, which examines actually Aboriginal culture, as it turns out, and finds that there are these beliefs that bind people together, beliefs are important. So that's what makes me think, Stephen, that we, we're facing a, a sort of change in this. We're going from one belief structure to another and it's a contest between the two. Yeah, I agree. I think we're at a, we're at a kind of transitional sort of crux point uh, in, in Western history. And the question will be, in a sense, 
uh, what prevails. And, and there, are, there are actually a bunch of candidates out there. So you've got the kind of wokeism of social justice, Black Lives Matter, uh, climate alarmism. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you know, a survey was done recently at the University of um, Bath in 2021, which in indicated that uh, uh, three out of four young Australians actually claim to be scared of climate change and 40% of young Australians uh, are seriously questioning whether they want to have children. So climate change uh, alarmism is a kind of new sort of religious apocalypticism that is taking people and sort of it's kind of a substitute for Christianity. And then you've got the Black Lives Matter and sort of social justice movement, which of course is huge in America. But interestingly, and maybe more positively, there are other things coming up to speak into this meaning void in people's lives. And I would say, for example, the Jordan Peterson movement uh, is one of them. Jordan Peterson has a phenomenal following around the world, sells millions of books. And, 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 and you've got his movement, which seeks to sort of question a lot of this wokeness and which actually leads a lot of people uh, to, uh, to um, reconsider Christianity and the Bible. And you've also got good old sort of Christianity, which is still hanging in there. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, the, the, the most recent sort of 2022 National Church Life Survey in Australia, in fact, church attendance is on the incline and younger people are actually more likely to attend church more regularly than older Australians. And so although religious identification might be declining among Christians in Australia, actual church attendance seems to be a little bit healthier. So there are a whole bunch of interesting things going on. And yeah, it's a fair question to ask, you know, what is going to win out in all of this or will it just be a, a sort of continual struggle uh, going forward? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. Of course, for progressive liberals that we're talking about, people like Sue Lines, the president of the Senate, they'd be aghast at the idea or the allegation that they have a form of religion. I mean, they would claim to be, you know, deeply logical, rational people uh, with, with no uh, degree of interest in superstition whatsoever. Uh, uh, what are they missing? I mean, how can this be a religion if they don't profess to it as such. They don't tick a box on the census to say woke. Yeah, well, probably in a few ways. I mean, you know, scholars of religion have talked about the, the sort of functional religion. That is uh, anything that sort of gives your life meaning and, and sort of gives you a set of rituals, uh, gives you something really to live for. And certainly wokeness fits that category. And, and it's, not a, it's not a coincidence that wokeness itself so resembles uh, particular forms of Christianity, particularly sort of American evangelical Calvinistic Christianity uh, with its emphasis, you know, search yourself for your sin. Well, in wokeness, search yourself for your phobias, your racism, your transphobia, search yourself. And if you say, I'm not sinful, that's just evidence of how sinful you are. If you say, I'm not racist, well, that's just evidence for how racist you are. And once you find all of these sins or racisms in you, then you have to publicly declare them and tell other people that they are also sinful or racist as well. And then over time, essentially try to evangelize the whole of society and bring about uh, some kind of, um, um, well, in the case of wokeness, a kind of diversity utopia. So they might not see themselves as religious, 
but in actual fact they've imbibed a whole bunch of ideas on social justice which actually can't be justified by science. So if someone says, for example, that um, you know, um, uh, women should be equal to men, that's not a scientific proposition. If someone says, I believe in human rights, that's not a scientific proposition. They're getting it from somewhere. Uh, in actual fact, historically, they're getting a lot of their ideals from Christianity itself. Uh, they just either don't know it or don't want to hear it. Um, but yeah, in actual fact, these are some of the most, I mean, social justice warriors and, and the woke brigade are some of the most religious people in modern society. To go back to the persecuted minority to which you and I both belong, uh, members of people who believe the, the gospel, um, and the manly sea eagles, yeah. the treatment of those seven players who, you know, basically um, humiliated, not allowed to play, were excluded from the ground. How, how serious was it, do you think, that we weren't able to get religious discrimination legislation through the Senate in the last parliament? I mean, is that something we're feeling now, the lack of protection? Oh, absolutely. And we've been feeling it for a few years. If you go to the Human Rights Law Alliance website, they will point you to dozens of stories of Australians um, being discriminated against in the workplace, losing their jobs as teachers or uh, as public servants, uh, not being able to adopt children because of their uh, sort of Christian and biblical views on things like gender and sexuality. Uh, the Manly Sea Eagles fiasco is just the latest and most sort of um, famous example of people in the workplace being punished uh, for not towing the sort of the, the woke LGBT line. And so uh, we've got a sort of remarkable situation here where we've got an employer who wants the employees to wear an ideological symbol celebrating uh, an ideology that is actually completely opposed to their religion, which really has nothing to do with football at all. And there are re there's really no protection for these football players. And, and I, I think they're basically heroes because the only thing that's really going to stop this kind of uh, coercive um, roll on of this LGBT wokeness movement is people actually standing up and saying, no, we're not going to do this. Um, courage culture. The, the, maybe this is, this is the redemption we're looking for in this, this conversation. Uh, so previous puritanical movements, the puritanical movement in Br Britain and Europe in the 16th, 17th century, uh, 18th century, early 18th, later manifestations of it in, say, the temperance movement in the United States and so forth. Of course, the tide did turn. In the end, people stood up and said, this is ridiculous. We're not having anything to do with it. And uh, it, it, it almost dies under the weight of its own absurdity. Are we going to, are we at reaching, do you think, peak woke? Are we at that moment? Uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely getting to peak woke. Uh, and, and, and the thing that a lot of people are finding they can't go along with are men playing against women in sports. That has really revealed the absurdity of wokeness, particularly transgender wokeness, where you literally have uh, strong, fully grown men playing against women in contact sports. And a lot of people are just saying, hey, whoa, this is really butting up against re reality. And so I think, I, I think that's definitely where peak woke becomes, its absurdity becomes revealed and its actual harmfulness becomes revealed. 
But this, this um, Manly Sea Eagles fiasco really shows that this wokeness, it's not a rights movement. Uh, it's not a freedom movement. It's got nothing to do with sort of what we might call traditional liberalism and liberal rights. It's essentially a coercive movement to reshape culture by forcing people to uh, adopt beliefs and celebrate things that they don't actually believe in. Stephen, we could talk for much longer, of course, but we've run out of time on Battleground. We will have you back for sure. Thank you very much for bringing some clarity to our thinking on this very important issue. And uh, we look forward to you joining us again on Battleground. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. Before I get your emails, let me give a big shout out to my good friends Tony and Ray, who will be watching this show in the comfort of their own lounge room on the big screen, I hope, using the ADH TV app. I dropped round earlier in the week to give them a little help downloading the app from the Google Play Store on their Sony TV, which cost absolutely nothing. Thanks for your kind comments about the show, Tony, in return for which I'll waive the installation charge. Last week's sobering conversation with Senator Jim Molan about his new book, Danger on Our Doorstep, attracted a lot of comments. Vicky wrote, Thank you for focusing attention on Jim Molan's urgent argument for immediate assessment of the dangers of a resurgent China. I purchased Jim's book and made the mistake of reading the epilogue first. As a result, I had little sleep that night. It's hard to get one's head around the urgency of our situation and the folly of ignoring it for so long. Well, Terry writes, surely the past two years should have taught democratic countries' leaders that reliance on countries that don't follow a similar political path for the, for, for the supply of essential products and resources can be disastrous. COVID highlighted just how dependent the world has become on Chinese manufacturing. Meanwhile, Russian weaponization of oil and gas is crippling economies. Jan says, so we buy our costly solar components from China to stop pollution from coal, which is cheaper for us to use. Then China uses our coal, so they have cheap energy. Does this make sense to anybody? Certainly it doesn't to me. Well, I'm amused as anybody, Jan, but anyway, here we are. I had lots of reaction to my comments criticising the use of emergency powers during the COVID pandemic. Pascal wrote, I have not heard Anna, Dan or Mark ever, and I mean ever, mention small business during the COVID debacle. Where is the summit for the business owners who could barely survive? Why risk your capital and assets when government ineptitude will have it taken away from you? Agreed, Pascal, and what troubles me even more is that so many jobs were lost to the private sector and transferred to the public sector in a state which continues to grow. This follows my comments. This uh, one follows my comments about Labour's job summit. Davesy wrote, Labour and their co collaborators in the unions and big business would love to do nothing better than destroy the middle class and small business. All the good work done by Hawke and Keating will be destroyed by power mongers. Yep, spot on. Well, send me your emails to nickcater at adh.tv. That's nickcater at adh.tv. That's it for tonight. Thanks to my producer, Amy Teakle, my colleagues at the Menzies Research Centre and the team of Australian Digital Holdings. And most of all, thank you to you for watching. I'll see you all again next time.